welcome to the very first episode of Quote Me, a podcast where we're going to talk about authors. This episode is all about Shirley Jackson. My name is Callie, I'm your co-host, and over here I've got Anna. Hi Callie, I'm Anna. Today I'm going to be talking a little bit about Shirley Jackson's life, kind of giving some background on her, just a general biography of her life. We also have Ian. What are you talking about? Hello, I'm Ian, and I will be talking about the historical context of her life and work. Hey everybody, I'm John. I'm also going to be joining in today, and we're going to be talking about the author's works and how her life and life experience factored into the works uh, and their creation. So Anna, can you go ahead and get us started? Tell us a little bit about Shirley Jackson's life. I would love to tell you about her life. Jackson is one of those writers that you probably know, even if you don't realize it. She's most known for her short story, The Lottery, in which a drawing takes place. It deals with traditions and how they may be problematic. Most people read this either in late middle or early high school. She also wrote The Haunting of Hill House, which has recently been turned into a Netflix series. Um, But she's done so, so much more than that. She wrote six novels and over a hundred short works, including those that I've just mentioned. Jackson was born on December 14th, 1916 to a rich family of Christian scientists in San Francisco, California. Her mother's name was Geraldine and her father's name was Leslie Jackson. To put it into perspective what her upbringing was somewhat like, they were completely unaffected by the Great Depression. And Jackson thought that she came from an underprivileged home because her father's country club didn't have a swimming pool. (laughs) Um, That's not to say that her life was without conflict, though. Um, Geraldine was, on all accounts, a very bad mother. She admitted that she did not want to be pregnant so early in her marriage and was devastated to give birth to a redheaded little girl, um, both of which were highly undervalued during the time being red-haired and being a little girl. Geraldine constantly spoke badly about her daughter and criticized her weight, um, her general appearance, how she dressed, the fact that she was messy, and Shirley did her best to somewhat appease her mother's wishes. In her early teens, we see that she kept a debutante diary in which she tried to portray herself as the perfect daughter. When she would sway away from that charade a little bit, she scolded herself in her writing, but she left her genuine emotional processing of what was going on with her mother and in her life to her semi-biographical fiction works that she began writing in her early teens. At 16, the Jackson family moved to Rochester, New York for her father's job. Shirley adjusted as best she could, but she still ended up being kind of like the new weird girl from across the country. She didn't keep the debutante diary anymore. She frequently lamented in her only diary now, that she hated that Rochester didn't have any avocados or pomegranates. She would fit right in to like the 21st century. Oh, she would love to be here right now. There are so many avocados. Miss Jackson, would you like your avocado toast? (laughs) (laughs) I'd like my avocado sliced, not mashed, please. My bad. Disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) But she would say the kids in her class didn't really like her very much. Um, They kind of had the same opinion about her that her mother did. They were like, oh, you're messy, you're ugly, you're chubby, and kids are mean. And so she wrote in her diary a lot. One time she wrote, 
I hate this school. I won't ever go back because they are so lousy to me. I hate them and they're all lousy to me and I wish I were pretty. Which makes me kind of sad for her. Yeah, that makes me sad too. <laughs> but she did manage to make it through high school. Good for her. Um, and she enrolled in the University of Rochester. She still had some problems adjusting. But she was very smart and clearly smart enough to pass her classes. She was just struggling with some mental health conditions that didn't let her have the motivation to go to class. And those mental health concerns would continue throughout her life. She did have this kind of idea that she was a social outcast, likely reinforced by her mother and peers. Yeah, it would be nearly impossible not to internalize some of that, or all of it, into your self-concept. During her college experience, she began to find her niche a little bit. She gained some friends. She wrote in her diary in college, I went to college and I had a friend and she was kind to me and together we were happy. She introduced me to a man who didn't laugh at me because I was ugly and I fell in love with him and tried to kill myself, but I was happy all the same. So here we really can see like she's still, she's starting to come into herself, but she is still struggling with those mental health concerns that she was having from the beginning. At this point in Jackson's life, we start to see her fiction writing still reflecting some of the sentiments that are in her diary. We see a lot of motifs of suicide and depression, but we're starting to see more friendships rather than the lone uh, female protagonist. We're also seeing a good bit of LGBT content in her writing, especially for the time. She may have felt personally connected to that. She does say at one point that she and her friend were lesbians, but some scholars speculate that that was just to emphasize her feelings of being outcast from society. So it is kind of up to interpretation. Wasn't there a quote about her actually insulting the LGBTQ community? There was, uh, which could be taken either as an example of internalized homophobia or just general standard homophobia. <laughs> the usual kind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense for a woman in the 50s. Yeah. Um, and you see it a lot in, in movies with, like, the Hayes Code and how, like, you can kind of characterize yourself as quote-unquote fruity, but, like, you never want to be explicitly gay because it's kind of when you put yourself in a position to be attacked by the community. Yeah, and she does write explicitly gay characters, which is very unusual for the time, but when she's later interviewed about her potential queerness, she outright rejects it. She says that... Um, she could never be a, quote, sexual deviant, Oof. which obviously today is a problematic thing to say. Just to uh, be clear, what time period are we currently in uh, talking about Shirley's life? We are currently in the mid-1930s. At this point, Jackson took a year off of school. Um, she was actually asked to leave the university because she was doing so poorly in her classes just from lack of attendance. She left. She took a year off. Uh, she told her parents that she would love to go back to school, but they didn't really see a point. Her mother at this point was convinced that she was not going to get married ever, and that was the only reason for a woman to go to school in her eyes. And her father saw it as a waste of money to send send someone back to school, but especially to send his daughter back to school. He just saw it as like a double financial loss. So what she did, she committed herself to writing a thousand words per day to improve her writing, which she did for an entire year. And that finally convinced her father to send her back to school because he could see the motivation in her. So she enrolled at Syracuse University, where she did so much better. 
While oh. she was at Syracuse University, she met Stanley Hyman. Boo. She liked that he was just as smart and quirky as she was. She often writes in her diary that she finally felt like she had met her intellectual superior, which he would later use against her repeatedly in terrible ways. She also liked that her parents didn't particularly approve of him. He was an atheist from a Jewish family, and this is during World War II. Um, They didn't think that marrying or dating outside of the religion was acceptable, and to reiterate, they were Christian scientists. I believe Ian will talk about what Christian science is momentarily, but she was super infatuated with Stanley. Stanley, I guess, had some appeal to him also, but he was super emotionally manipulative. The way he would talk to her in letters sometimes would make her very uncomfortable. He would be very sexually explicit, which she was very uncomfortable with, and he was constantly unfaithful to her. He thought that men should be able to have multiple partners at all times without the woman being able to object but that a woman should only have one partner. And she didn't love that so much. Fair. Yeah. Why do people call that a double standard? <laughs> I, I think be- you're correct, John. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is the technical term. <laughs> um, but they got married in 1940, so congratulations to the Hyman family. Um, that was the same year that she and Stanley both graduated. On their marriage certificate, Jackson wrote that her birth date was in 1919 rather than 1916, so that she would seem younger than her husband. So going into it, there was already a good bit of insecurity. Um, Her parents did not attend the wedding. Based on what you've said, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think she was probably okay with since she enjoyed that they didn't really like him that much. As much as she seems to like Stanley, he also just seems to be a way to really stick it to her parents. So... Yeah, that totally makes sense. That seems in character. It's interesting, because thinking back on her writing, she talks a lot about her relationship with her mom, but, I mean, I don't know if I've ever seen a parallel to her husband. I think all of her female characters just don't get married. I think that's right. I I can't really think of an instance where there is... Yeah, that's interesting. There was something... Where I got most of my information from was the biography by Ruth Franklin... Um, it's titled Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life. And in that biography, there were a couple themes of domineering husbands, but typically it was someone who is already married to a domineering husband, not someone who is getting married to. So it was like an already established relationship. Right. Mm, interesting. Stanley and Shirley had four children together, two boys and two girls. Hyman was a militant atheist and enforced a very strict no-religion policy in his home. One day, his daughter was reading the Bible at the dinner table, and Hyman came up and slapped the book out of her hands and sent her to her room without dinner. That's what you get for reading. Yeah, don't read in the the Hyman-Jackson household. Another thing that Hyman was insecure about was that Jackson very quickly began to out-earn him with just her writing, and he had to take a job as a university professor at the University of Bennington, which he hated. He began to like heavily critique her writing, which in a way helped because it did make, him, make her better. Um, he was a very good literary critic, but apparently not a very good writer, because she did so much better than him. <laughs> So as she began to out-earn him, he began to overcompensate 
for that um, disparity between their incomes. And there are rumors that he was very cheap. That could either be fact or it could be a stereotype of the time. While Hyman was teaching at Bennington University, he came across a group of communists and decided to join them. This was kind of right in the middle of the Red Scare, so maybe not the best life decision, but that's what he was he was going for. Their family was promptly investigated by the FBI for being communists. Um, and this was while Jackson was being commissioned to write a story about the Salem witch trials. She did her best to cover up the parallels, but it didn't seem to work, and it kind of worked against them. Uh, but neither of them were ever sent to prison for being communists. It was just kind of a constant nuisance having the FBI hovering around. So they were they ever confirmed communists? Oh, they were definitely communists. The people at Bennington University were, similar to Shirley Jackson, very rich, uh, but they were a part of a very strong counterculturalist movement where they were focusing on um, not so much dismantling gender roles, but not putting so much emphasis on women having children. Shirley and Stanley had four children together, which was kind of a disconnect from their friend group because they weren't heavily into like the family dynamics. Um, so they would continually kind of like ask or poke fun at Jackson for having had children. And she would defend herself saying she genuinely loved being a mother, that she thought she was doing a good job at it, and that she loved her kids as individuals. Her son, Lawrence, she kind of didn't know how to handle him at first because he wasn't exactly like her. He wasn't really big into like reading or writing. He was more like into sports and music and things like that. Um, so it took them <laughs> it took them a second to adjust to a different set of skills, but they were able to do it. They moved on pretty quickly. Um, she had a daughter who was similar to her. Um, she was very excited about her education. She would, she loved to read and write. She wanted to be a writer when she grew up. Um, but unfortunately, there was some abuse in the classroom by one of her teachers that should not have taken place. Jackson tried to stand up for her daughter but there was a great deal of backlash from local parents who had also had the teacher. Um, they would say things like, I had that teacher and I turned out fine, so obviously it's not that bad. Um, but it was that bad. Her daughter was like feigning illness and like shaking when she had to go to school and not eating. And they would take her to the doctor over and over again and they could tell, the doctor was saying there's nothing physically wrong with her. It seems like this is just very, very severe anxiety and they were trying to get to the bottom of it when they finally did. That was how it unfolded, was that there was a lot of backlash from it. Jackson often wrote about her experience as a mother. So she wrote um, Life Among the Savages and Raising Demons about bringing up her family. But this was one of those things that it was just too heavy for her to write about. There are a couple of drafts floating around um, where she tried to write about the experience, but it ended up being too much. When her kids were all but grown up, her son Lawrence was dating. Lawrence is the one who was athletic and okay, yeah. um, like musical. He was dating a young woman named Corinne Briggs at college. Uh, they had an unexpected pregnancy, and because of the time, were kind of forced to get married. Around the same time, Shirley's health took a very sharp downward turn. She began having attacks where she would pass out unexpectedly. 
she went to the doctor for it and he recommended that she lose weight she did her best to do so this was um one of the things that Geraldine had constantly picked at when she was a child. So she wrote to her mother seeking guidance, and her mother was very supportive, kind of for the first time in her life. This was one of the first time that Geraldine was very supportive of her, especially in her adult life. But Shirley was not able to stick to any particular diet, partially because the diet was so restrictive. The doctor had her on like a thousand calories a day. And then Geraldine was offering her advice that, oh, well, if you skip lunch, then you can have another drink after dinner and things like that that just weren't really helpful and kind of contributed to um, Jackson had some alcohol abuse issues, both Geraldine and Shirley, actually. And so Geraldine's quote unquote advice was further detrimental to her health. And then on top of the stress of trying to lose weight, the negative effects of her on her body from yo-yo dieting, the severe calorie restriction, the excess of alcohol and other stimulants. That on top of stress, here comes the stress part. Yep. One of Shirley's best friends and her husband fell on hard times. Shirley and Stanley were very kind to let them move into their guest house. So kind even that Stanley decided it was a good idea to start an affair with Shirley's best friend going a little bit beyond being just a good host (laughs) thank you john (laughs) you're welcome but jackson did become very anxious and struggled a lot with being in public after that so at what point did she become aware of the affair and was her friend's husband aware of the affair um her friend's husband was aware of the affair she became aware of it after they had moved out they came into some money and ended up moving overseas. They were not living in the Jackson's guest house, but they did did continue their affair through letters. Jackson became very anxious and struggled to be in public. She saw a psychiatrist for her symptoms and they did begin to lessen, but she was still struggling to perform ordinary tasks like going grocery shopping. Um, There was one point where she she was doing such a good job. She like got to the grocery store and had her basket halfway full and then just had a complete panic attack and had to go home and like called the store and she she had them like fill the rest of her order and send it to her, which is very smart. I hear Whole did, Foods does that now. Did Shirley Jackson invent Uber Foods? She might have. It's a genius idea. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> But, I mean, it still sucks that she wasn't able to complete it on her own. Her anxiety and depression took another very sharp dip. And she wrote almost daily about the darkness creeping in and an obsession that she never named. She would frequently say, like, if she names the obsession, then she just won't be able to let it go. That she felt like she was almost able to shake it sometimes. But if she said out loud or wrote down what it was, then it would just never go away. Um... And the author of the biography that I wrote does point out that these thoughts became so all-consuming that when JFK was assassinated, she made no comment about it in any of her personal or professional writing. Which is interesting because she was very politically active. Yeah, she and her husband were both very politically active, and it was something, as far as my understanding, I wasn't around, (laughs) but (laughs) people say (laughs) that it was something that everybody paid attention to it was like every eye turned and everybody was talking about it so for it to not even be a blip on her radar she was very deep in the depression 
that diary, which is her second to last, she starts another one, but that diary ends with a repetition of laughter is possible, laughter is possible, laughter is possible. And then this is coming directly from the biography, Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life. On April 27, 1965, Shirley Jackson took the stage of Syracuse University Grifford Auditorium, wearing a bright red dress with her hair loose down her back. She began to read the opening chapter of her new novel, speaking slowly and carefully. I always believe in eating when I can. I had plenty of money and no name when I got off the train, and even though I had had lunch in the dining car, I liked the idea of stopping off for coffee and a donut while I decided exactly which way I intended to go. I did not believe in turning one way or another without consideration, but then neither do I believe that anything is positively necessary at any given time. I needed a name and a place to go, enjoyment and excitement, and a fine high gleefulness I knew I could provide on my own. This comes from Shirley's new novel. She was intending to write a happy story about a woman whose husband had recently passed and she was being kind of released into the world for the first time since then. I think she went to five different colleges during this time to talk about her book and to try to promote it. But less than three months after this presentation, she was found dead in her home. Shirley Jackson passed on August 8th, 1965. She went upstairs to take a nap after lunch, which was common for her, and she never woke up. She was found by Stanley that afternoon. So to close my portion, I have an excerpt from one of my favorite poems by Jackson. Um, I think that it really shows her attitude and her personality a good bit. This poem is titled, Song for All the Editors, Writers, Theorists, Political Economists, Idealists, Communists, Liberals, Reactionaries, Bruce Blyven, Marxist Critics, Reasoners and Postulators, Any and All Splinter Groups, My Father, Religious Fanatics, Political Fanatics, Men on the Street, Fascists, Ernest Hemingway, All Army Members and Advocates of Military Training, Not Accepting Those Too Old to Fight, The ROTC and the Boy Scouts, Walter Winchell, the terror organizations, vigilantes, all Senate committees, and my husband. I would not drop dead from the lack of you. My cat has more brains than the pack of you. Anna, thank you for sharing all of that. Uh, very informative stuff. The, the, one of the things I wanted to say that just really struck me about it is just how there's a, a constant tension in Shirley's life, and that seems like the overarching theme of it in its entirety, and that Tension is between her and her parents, with society at large, with her husband, and with herself even. She's just constantly at war with everyone, herself included, expectations for who she is and how she should be. And I think that's really interesting. And I, I think that's actually something that carries over into her work. And I'm going to try to elaborate on that in a little bit. But I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. And I, that was just super informative. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. yeah, I would I would definitely agree. Um, I think that tension that she feels between herself and society and between herself and her expectations from her parents is very formative in American Gothic literature because it, it's, it makes you uncomfortable when she like points it out, when she like makes you see society for what it really is and, and takes you out of your comfort zone. And that's one of the things I thought was like really interesting. It doesn't seem like she has a true comfort zone for herself. Not until the end of her life. Then towards the end when she was going to divorce Stanley and her work started getting a little 
more upbeat. She wanted to write happy things. I think she just felt compelled to write horror because that's how she felt. She that's the life she lived. Even as a child, she had mentioned that yeah. she was very lonely. So yeah, I think her characters really show that. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a gravity that comes with it that she's sort of like pulled into, and that's yeah, that's something that we'll definitely dig into here in a little bit for sure. Yeah, and um, talking about the the tension between her and, and society and expectations, Ian, can you go ahead and tell us a little bit about what was happening in the time she was alive? Sure. I was uh, going to start off my section with a quote. So while I was conducting the research for this podcast on the historical context, I wanted to find a definition, which I did. And, quote, historical context refers to the social, religious, economic, and political conditions that existed during a certain time or place, end quote. It is all the facts of a particular time and place in which an event occurs. Instead of analyzing works of literature by contemporary standards, we can use historical context to analyze literature. No works of literature can be fully appreciated or understood without historical context, and without historical context, we are only seeing a piece of the picture and not fully understanding the influence of the time and place in which the story was written. So not to go quote heavy um, on my introduction, but I have one more uh, quote that I found that I don't think I could say any better. So here it is. Quote, literature is part of our cultural heritage. It leads up intellectually and emotionally and deepens our understanding of our history, society, and our individual lives. History plays a fundamental role in shaping literature. Every novel, play, poem one reads is influenced by the political context in which it was written. The people that the authors know and the wider society that frame the entire work. How can we even consider reading literature without understanding the work through the historical context? So, as mentioned, Shirley Jackson was born in 1916, and this was the height of World War I. Growing up, her parents, like Anna said, were conservative country club people who were sheltered for most of the struggles of middle-class Americans at the time. Growing up, her family were followers of Christian science, which started with Jackson's grandma, who at the time was a Christian science faith healer and who lived with the family. Being a Christian science faith healer basically means that if one of the Jacksons had an ailment, they would try to pray the ailment away. Jackson did recall years later how angry she was when her grandma and her mother prayed over her little brother's broken arm instead of seeking medical attention. And later, she did put Christian science as a religion while filling out a college application. So I don't know how religious she was, but there was a little bit of religion in her life. I do want to point out that that's um, similar to her views on LGBTQ and how she seemed to go back and forth and she kind of was inconsistent. I think it, yeah, and I think it could be her fear of her parents, which could um, make her want to, like, say that she's a Christian scientist or say she's not gay, but in reality, she's not being true to herself. For sure. She did. There's always that that back and forth, that tug of war. Like, am I, can I be my own person or am I what others want me to be? Yeah. She did play into spiritualism also, which, um, if you don't know a lot about the spiritualist movement, it's pretty fun to listen, to learn about. Um, but a lot of like spirit boards and tarot and things like that 
she would kind of dabble or experiment in and kind of saw herself as somewhere in between the Christian scientist and the witch. So oh, I like that. That's fun. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Like Anna mentioned earlier, during this time, Jackson grew up in Burlingame, California, an affluent suburb in San Francisco. Naturally, I needed to go do some research on Burlingame and found this quote from the Burlingame Historical Society. Burlingame, California is a special place just 16 miles south of San Francisco. Incorporated in 1908, it has become a tree-lined suburb with a variety of home styles ranging from English Tudor and American bungalow to Spanish Revival and Streamline Modern. Its rich and diverse history reflects the influence of the Spanish ranchos as well as the area's turn-of-the-century wealthy elite. In 1920, the population was 4,107, and by 1930, it was up to 13,270, so another small little town. So Jackson admits that her first published novel, The Road Through the Wall, was loosely based on Burlingame and her childhood growing up in a rich California neighborhood. It is one of the first examples that I could find of a historical context of her life and environment influencing her writing. She also later admitted that the novel was written to stick it to her parents, who she was angry at for their prejudice and greediness, stating that, quote, a writer's first novel has to be one in which they get back at their parents. So the story is about an upper-class neighborhood in California that is separated from a lower-class neighborhood by a wall. And when the residents of Pepper Street find out that the wall will be knocked down to make new housing, they worry that the unsavory elements of the lower class will pour into the neighborhood while not realizing what awful people they are. So I kind of pick up in 1940 when Jackson and Hyman eventually moved and settled in North Bennington, Vermont in 1945. Jackson kept the house and lived inconspicuously in the town known to most as just Mrs. Hyman, the quiet life of a new professor. Just a few years after moving to North Bennington, Jackson wrote The Lottery, which was published by The New Yorker. She learned that most of the people in North Bennington did not read The New Yorker, which came as a pleasant surprise, since she had based some of the townspeople in the story on the real people in the community. Obviously, it only took a couple months, though, for the story to circulate around the neighborhood, and needless to say, the neighbors were not too happy about it. I'm not surprised. (laughs) Quote, the general consensus in town was that the nasty story made them all look bad and uncivilized. This showed some of the historical context surrounding the setting of the lottery. And I also have as a little side note, we have always lived in the castle. Her last completed novel was also set in a Bennington-esque town full of suspicious and hateful villagers. Oh, <laughs> that's interesting. I can see the parallel now that you mention it. They were very hateful. <laughs> They're so mean. They're, everyone's like, all of her neighbors are mean in her stories. Like, they are. Just, for a large I'm like, majority of them. I think everyone in her life is mean to her. I don't, uh, I, it doesn't seem like there's a single nice person. That except she her one friend from ever. college. Is that the one that slept with her husband? No. Wait, was it? No, it wasn't that one. Um, so she had two friends in college. Yeah. Um, Juno, and then I don't remember the other lady's name. She was a Russian pianist studying at the University of Rochester. Mm-hmm. And it was one of her friends who was the man who didn't make fun of her for being ugly, quote-unquote ugly. Um, So she had a few friends. She did kind of come into herself 
a little bit and found her niche. But still, the majority of people were pretty, pretty bad to her. It does read overwhelmingly negative. Yes. <laughs> Minus that one time in college. That one time in college. Yeah. But it makes for great American Gothic literature. There you go. That it does. <laughs> she lived in North Bennington, which is a small village in the north of the town of Bennington. So it's kind of weird. You have the town of Bennington, and then in the northwest, you just have a little village called North Bennington. It is a small college town and was the first town established west of the Green Mountains. The town is comprised of about 112 acres, and the 2010 census stated that the village only had about 1,643 residents. So she's lived in small villages or very, small towns her whole life. For sure, very small towns. Of course everyone was mean small to her. Small girl, yeah. Yeah, like small town suburbs. Yeah. But a fun fact about um, North Bennington is that Robert Frost had a farm there and is buried there. Really? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's where if... he wrote one of his famous works. When was Robert Frost alive? I think the 18, 1880s to the 1960s from when I... Do you think they ever met? Now, she did host parties where famous authors oh, would come to her house, but was that North Bennington? I don't know. They could have met. Um, he was born on March 26, 1874 in San Francisco, and then died January 29th, 1963, so just a couple years before she did, in Boston. Okay. That is just a quick search, and <laughs> coming straight from Wikipedia to you. <laughs> I, I choose to believe that um, Robert Frost and Shirley Jackson were best friends. Um, they were both born in San Francisco. What if he was the man who was nice to her? <gasps> was Robert Frost a nice man? <laughs> a nice college man? In 1945, obviously everyone knows World War II ended as Shirley was getting settled into North Bennington. Uh, World War II had a profound impact on almost everyone alive during the 1940s, and Shirley Jackson was no different. The war impacted some of her work. Themes of the war can be found throughout her writings. In just five years, the world found out about the Holocaust, saw World War II end, and saw the beginning of the Cold War. The influence of the Holocaust and the Cold War can be seen in the lottery and other works. Systematic persecution, conformity to society, and the common element of people blindly following law without any thought of their own would have resonated deeply during that time. So then obviously we get to when the war ends, and when the war ends, you get a lot of gender roles and female discrimination. So women were fired from pretty much all their jobs and let go to make room for the male soldiers returning home. This meant that the women were expected to return home to the role as the homemaker for their families. Education for women was looked down upon and sexism in the workplace was rampant. At the time of the lottery's publication in 1948, the Cold War had started and the Red Scare was beginning to grow roots. The country was in anti-communism hysteria as McCarthyism was right around the corner. One historian wrote that, quote, the outbreak of the Cold War had hardened American attitudes toward the ideology adopted by the Soviet Union. And another added that an American society at the time was entering a phase of staunch conformity as anti-communist sentiment and paranoia grew in the United States, end quote. 
This idea of conformity exploded into what would be known as the Red Scare. This conformity expressed itself as blind patriotism, fervent consumerism, and ardent traditionalism. Marketing and advertising targeted these fairs and the ideals through messages of conformity such as fitting in or keeping up with the Joneses. During these early Cold War years, as American patriotism grew, masses of people practiced systematic persecution to those that did not hold the same American ideals. This would take form in McCarthyism in 1950. Now we're on to the 1950s, and the Cold War is in full effect. McCarthyism is sweeping the country. People are accusing people of being communists left and right. Celebrities are losing jobs, uh, getting fired. And this led to the media controlling the navigation of the negative perception of Russian culture and the positive perception of American culture. Russian women were shown dressed in gunny sacks as they toiled in drab factories while their children were placed in cold, anonymous daycare centers. In contrast to the evils of communism, an image was promoted of American women with the feminine hairdos and delicate dresses tending to the hearth and home as they enjoyed the fruits of capitalism, democracy, and freedom. Okay, according to VintageNews.com, um, in their article, Great Depression Food Sacks Became a Necessary and Marketable Fashion, it is like grain or food sacks that are then turned into clothes. And I think I saw that at some point they started using like printed patterns on food sack bags so that like little girls could have cute dresses and feel nice about themselves while still like doing good for the economy. Okay. Okay. But probably in the in so it, it it sounds to me like the wearing a gunny sack means that you can't afford clothing yeah so it's sort of a sign yeah. of poverty okay yeah. if you if you are trying to promote an american ideal then yeah. you need the like extreme opposite american wealth like yes yeah exactly. okay capitalism wealth got it okay so this was the era of the happy homemaker i said like air quotes with that happy homemaker that started in the 1940s. For young mothers in the 1950s, domesticity was idealized in the media and women were encouraged to stay at home. Women who chose to work when they didn't need the paycheck were often considered selfish, putting themselves before the needs of their families. Jackson was also expected to keep up the image of the good American housewife of the time. She did the cooking, the cleaning, the grocery shopping, and the child rearing, all while writing amazing novels and short stories so so what did what did hymen do he sat at his desk with a pen and had her refill it when it was out of ink. really yes that seriously that was a real thing wow (laughs) who's holding this household together yeah it's almost like if he had been making money he could have had a leg to stand on but (laughs) i know this is something that anna alluded to earlier but like hymen's fragility really shines through yes because what a power play to have to have her the breadwinner come and like refill his piss like he's the one make him feel all this work Um. wow he's such a whiny little emotionally manipulative baby like when you get into the nitty-gritty i wanted to but like some of the things just drive me crazy even thinking about little little things like that yeah where he just something he could have done easily since he's not doing anything to take care of his four children. No. But he needed to feel like a big Power. man. Yeah. 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 
Seriously. I don't like that guy. Yeah. Me neither. He seems very domineering. Yeah. Just the way that you guys are presenting him. Yeah. Um, not really doing a whole lot. And very liberal in his politics, but mm-hmm. also very, like, like dominating and overbearing and sort of conservative and social roles. Yeah, in his in his personal life. Yes. And I yeah. did read that communism had something to do with that as well because it was, like, a very male-dominated and supposedly back then in communism, if you're a man, you could have a bunch of wives. Oh, so that was that like was a communist that. ideal in the 50s? Partly of it, yeah. Partly I didn't realize that was a communist thing. That's one of the... <laughs> One of the articles I read okay. had mentioned it That's interesting. briefly, not that it was a okay. huge contributor. So Robert Vow, editor-in-chief of Publishers Libright, contended that Jackson was mostly overlooked by the predominantly male literature establishment of the 50s because of her looks. Quote, I stand by my belief that if Patricia Highsmith or Shirley Jackson had looked like Sylvia Plath, they would have never been condemned to the margins. There's the sense that people don't take Jackson seriously at the time because she's viewed as a dumpy, overweight housewife, end quote. It also did not help the majority of protagonists in her story were women, and at this time in history, almost all book reviewers were men who either looked down on stories about women or didn't understand what she was doing. I'm going to talk a lot more about how her writing affected her legacy later on. I think you're right. I think he's right saying that like her physical appearance and her being a housewife has a lot to do with why people disrespected or dismissed her. The Sylvia Plath comment gets me because yes, Sylvia Plath was a gorgeous woman, but she also was a confessional poet, which means that she was talking a lot about her mental health and her relationships and her emotional standing. And it was all very personal. And it was, I think something that people could read and it could be a guilty pleasure it would like sustain that sort of macabre curiosity that we have. And they could read it without feeling like a victim, without feeling like they're being attacked. When we talk about Shirley Jackson, she is deliberately criticizing the community that she lives in. People are gonna read that and say, she's insulting me personally. This is an attack on me. They can't say that with Sylvia Plath. I mean, she attacks her dad, like for sure. Yeah, I agree with that. I got that same kind of feeling, how it resonates and hits home with the community because they get in such an uproar. If it was all lies, then they really wouldn't care, but it obviously there's some truth behind it. This is a really interesting and important distinction to make, and it really does underscore how deep-seated the misogyny was in this time period. Yeah. Sure. Well, and I think that, I mean, like the person you quoted said, still today like an attractive woman is more likely to go further in a specific career than an unattractive woman but i think what's being overlooked is that an unattractive man is just as likely to be successful as an attractive man now granted in certain industries like in in hollywood and things like that that's not going to be the same but a woman's success is somewhat dependent on her looks and the fervor with which she raises her opinions and that's not the case for a man and that is something that shirley jackson brings up repeatedly I also think it's important to say um, the, the men in a female author's life in her proximity are also very important to how she's viewed. And I say that because I'm thinking of Mary Shelley and Percy Shelley. Mm. And, you know, Frankenstein um, is a classic. Everyone's read it. We all know who Frankenstein is. Um, 
And I think that a lot of her fame comes from the fact that she was friends with a lot of male authors. Her husband was successful. And then we talk about Shirley Jackson's husband, who was not successful. I, I mean, we've been talking about that the whole time. <laughs> so, he, yeah. he is a writer, but he's he has no... And he was a communist. So he was actively othering himself from the community. So she had no way of getting into the community. Right. And even though there was a um, a statistic where the lottery was the most responded to story published, even still to this day, um, the most responded to thing published by the New Yorker. But even with that notoriety, I mean, we kind of get into like that all publicity is good publicity. Yeah. <laughs> um, even with that level of publicity, she still was not nearly as famed as her writing should be. Oh, for sure. Definitely overlooked. Yeah. And... One point I wanted to make was that the lottery is one of the most anthologized short stories in the West. Up there, yes. probably top ten. I mean, everyone reads it in high school. I think Anna, you already pointed that out. We've all read the lottery. And then when you say that our the name Shirley Jackson, almost everyone will be like, Who? Right. That's what I said. Yeah. But you know Shirley Jackson. No, I, <laughs> I didn't know that I knew Shirley Jackson before Callie said, oh, the lottery. Yeah. Then I realized. But I didn't even know that that was the same person who had wrote Haunting of Hill House or The Sundial or yeah. any of that. Yeah. So it's just, it's an interesting thing to get into. For sure. For sure, definitely. All right, John, can you tell us a little bit about what Shirley Jackson wrote? Sure. Well, as Anna mentioned earlier, Shirley Jackson was a very prolific writer. Uh, six published novels, 200 short stories, I believe is the figure, and at least two two memoirs. That sounds right. Uh, so super prolific writer. One of the things that you probably don't realize about Shirley Jackson, though, except Anna, because I think she mentioned it earlier, <laughs> um, is that Shirley Jackson, although primarily known as a gothic horror writer, uh, actually played with a variety of genres and tones. As a matter of fact, in Monster She Wrote, The Women Who Pioneered Horror and Speculative Fiction, Lisa Kroger and Melanie Anderson write, the lottery established Jackson as the reigning queen of the horror genre, though she wrote everything from campus novels to darkly comic domestic sketches about family life. People are complex, and the spectrum of genres and tones that Shirley Jackson wrote in reflect what a complex individual she was. While that is true, the three stories that she is most well known for, The Lottery, We Have Always Lived in the Castle, and The Haunting of Hill House, definitely fall squarely within the um, gothic horror fiction genre. And I definitely think there's a reason for this. As we alluded to earlier, there's kind of this, this gravity in Shirley Jackson's life where she's kind of drawn towards the status of the other. Well, maybe not drawn towards necessarily, but she's kind of been cast in that. And she's never really been able to escape it. So I think that's a huge part of her pull towards that genre. Um, before we start talking about it, we're going to talk about all three of those stories in one way, shape, or form, and how her life kind of like fed into them, and how they're kind of able to be viewed as her perhaps working through them. But I want to give some background on what gothic horror fiction is, a little bit about its history, just for everybody who might not be familiar with it. 
if you guys will indulge me for a moment. I would love that. Please, Please don't. So, and this is from the Newark Public Library's entry for Gothic fiction. So, we've got the bona fides. As a genre that was first established with the publication of Horace Walpole's dark foreboding The Castle of Otranto in 1764, in the centuries since, Gothic fiction has not only flourished but also branched off into many popular subgenres. Early novels in the Gothic horror subgenre heavily featured discussions of morality, philosophy, and religion, with the evil villains most often acting as metaphors for some sort of human temptation the hero must overcome. The novel's endings are more often than not unhappy, and romance is never the focus. The battle between humanity and unnatural forces of evil, sometimes man-made, sometimes supernatural, with an oppressive, inescapable, and bleak landscape is considered to be the true trademark of a gothic horror novel. In addition to those things, writer Patrick Kennedy has listed some additional features that I feel like are worth mentioning. Uh, these employ dark and picturesque scenery, startling and melodramatic narrative devices, and an overall atmosphere of exoticism, mystery, fear, and dread. Often a gothic novel or story will revolve around a large ancient house that conceals a terrible secret or serves as the refuge of an especially frightening and threatening character. So, yes, Kelly. Can I also add? Yes, um, may. <laughs> another important part of gothic literature is the pathetic fallacy. And I just want to mention, because I love the pathetic fallacy, I think it's hilarious. Tell us about the pathetic fallacy. Yes, I will. Um, the pathetic fallacy is when people associate their own emotions with something that cannot feel emotion, like weather or um, inanimate objects. A good example would be like, the rain is like my tears, like my sadness, you know, like that kind mm. of thing. Ooh. Because the weather can't feel your emotions. So silly. But can't it? Yeah, can't it? <laughs> it's raining because I'm sad, right? Obviously. I do love that. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to throw that in there, so. No, no, fantastic. Thank you for contributing. Oh, you're welcome. Much appreciated. You can just jump in whenever you want. <laughs> oh, sure. And speaking of architecture and setting, um, Shirley Jackson comes from a long line of architects. Yes. Really? Yeah. Oh. Yes, she does. Interesting. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about, and that's a, that's a nice setup for it, um, big part of it, as we're saying, is um, gothic novels or stories, they revolve around a large ancient house that conceals a terrible secret or serves as the refuge of an especially frightening and threatening character. In two of the three works that she is most well known for, such a house, such uh, a castle exists. Uh, this is, of course, The Haunting of Hill House, and we have always lived in a castle. Um, like Anna was saying, she is descended from a long line of architects, and one such house uh, built by her grandparents actually was an inspiration for The Haunting of Hill House. We're going to touch on that in a little bit, but it seems like architecture um, symbolically was very important to Shirley. Architecture you can look at as the binds or bonds of a thing and as we've talked about before Shirley's life was bounded on all sides by expectations, hers and other people's and that's something she grappled with quite a lot and it's something that actually did factor into these most memorable stories. It was a very raw personal thing for her and if you do have the background 
which we all should have a little bit now, thanks to you guys, it definitely is a little bit more transparent when you go through and read the works. So, might be a little counterintuitive, but the first thing we're going to talk about is We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which was her last published novel. We're going to start there first. So, to give a little background on We Have Always Lived in the Castle, this was a short summary provided by Monster She Wrote, which was one of the texts that I primarily looked at when I was doing my research for this. So the story focuses on the Blackwood sisters, Constance and Mary Catherine, nicknamed Mary Cat, who live with their infirm Uncle Julian in their fenced-in family estate outside of a New England town. Uncle Julian's poor health and the scorn the townspeople feel for the surviving Blackwoods are the result of a tragedy that occurred six years earlier. One night at supper, four members of the Blackwood family, the girl's parents, brother, and aunt, were poisoned and died. Constance, who hadn't used the arsenic-laced sugar on the dinner table, was arrested for the crime but not indicted. The townspeople believed she got away with murder. Her younger sister, Mary Cat, had been sent to her room without dinner on that fateful night and now is the only member of the house who, who, household who ventures outside. She also practices magic rituals in order to keep Constance safe. Out of the blue, their cousin Charles swoops in later in the novel, believing he is the rightful inheritor of the estate and established himself as patriarch of the family. So... The reason that I wanted to start with this one first is because in a lot of ways, this feels like the quintessential Shirley Jackson story. As we've talked about before in the previous sections, Shirley Jackson very much internalized this sense of the other throughout her life. She always felt at odds with all the important figures in her life, the community at large. It's something that they talk about in a monster she wrote at one point. The New England setting of the story was an integral part of Jackson's writing, which often features main characters who are outsiders and find themselves persecuted in a hostile small-town environment. Uh, It was a familiar experience for Jackson. Uh, She, in Bennington, was very much the other. Uh, People would talk about her and her penchant for practicing fortune-telling and tarot cards. We've touched on it before, but... Jackson sort of saw herself between being a witch and a Christian scientist, and that kind of put her at odds with the people around her. This transferred over to Mary Cat within the story. She was a practitioner of magic, and the townspeople viewed it with suspicion. When Mary Cat would go into town to get groceries, and this is something we talked about in the previous segment, uh, people would view her with scorn. Uh, they would talk about her. She would go into the grocery store and they would pull her groceries for her. But she was always the subject of gossip and discourse because of the perception of her and her family. Monster, she wrote, says, Mary Cat Blackwood, like many of the other women in Jackson's work, is an outsider, but she maintains an imaginative spirit and a fierce devotion to defending her sister and her home something Jackson was also very passionate about. She cared very much about her family. The Blackwood sisters' experience at the margins of their community reflects Jackson's own experience. She didn't quite fit in with other wives of her small t- of her small university town. She spent her days writing and tending children, but her nights were filled with more exotic fare. A lover of the occult, Jackson gave tarot readings to friends and family. She claimed not to believe in ghosts, but she owned a crystal ball and a Ouija board and seemed to relish her reputation as a witch. Whether or not she practiced actual witchcraft is debatable. 
This is, of course, found in Monster She Wrote, the primary text that I consulted for my research. Callie. I want to bring it back to this, that she is always inconsistent. She'll say one thing and do something else, same with the LGBTQ, same with Christian science, same with believing in ghosts. I think she just didn't want anyone to know the truth. She actually said that she does not believe in ghosts. I know. I know she said that. She said she doesn't believe in ghosts while practicing. Doing tarot and doing Ouija boards. Okay, yeah, okay. I think she didn't want anyone to know the truth about her. She'd be really mad at us right now. Ooh, yeah. She would not (laughs) like this podcast. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Continue. So, this sense of constant tension with everyone around her that is reflected in the novel is also a part of gothic literature Uh, that sense of building dread and suspense within the atmosphere they live in this house on the outskirts of town very nice fancy house the townspeople are resentful of it it's mysterious because this this tragic circumstance happened there Uh, similar to jackson's own experience she's having these parties with her husband all of these counterculture figures are there Things that the regular folks, the happy homemakers that Ian referred to, might not understand. Um, This is just a a very clear representation of Jackson's life as a whole. Later in the novel, there's actually a fire that leaves the house looking desiccated and more like a castle. And the townspeople actually show up to the house and... um, while they help put out the fire, they then turn against the family and start breaking and smashing things. And I think this is pretty reflective about her feelings about how the world views her. Uh, the world is a harsh, antagonistic place that doesn't understand her. Mm. And you can very clearly see that reflected here in this work. I think it also um, shows the jealousy of the townspeople. Yes. Jealousy and also um, fear. Of what they don't understand. The mob mentality in yeah. her stories. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Uh, there is a story. Uh, she was, I think it was when one of her children was being born. She uh, went to uh, go to the doctor. She was getting checked up. She was being looked at by the nurse. And the nurse uh, asked her what her profession was. She said, oh, I'm a writer. And she's like, well, we're just going to put housewife. It was something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, was not understood looked at condescendingly by other people how how dare you try and you know be more than what you are yeah and that's very much something the blackwoods are having to contend with in this novel agreed between the three stories we have always lived in the castle the haunting of hill house and the lottery itself this seems to be that quintessential other story where you're really getting to see the world through shirley's perspective where you're you're going down the street and you, you feel the disdain and the scorn mm. being leveled at this person. I, I really like this work because the horror aspect of it is not just the, um, the unsettling psychology of Mary, but also the, the way that the townspeople look at them. Like when, imagine you live in a neighborhood and everyone in the neighborhood hates you. And you're always, you always fear for your life. You yes. go out into town and you're like, someone's going to rob me. Someone's going to mug me. I, I'm afraid to exist in this world. 
Yes. It's not safe to exist in this world. Um, everything becomes a, a survival story. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's an awful thing. And that definitely seems to be Jackson's POV, especially later in her life. Um, I think it's very well represented here. Moving on, the next one we're going to be discussing is The Haunting of Hill House. To give you guys some background about what the book is generally about, and this is also from Monster She Wrote, a very helpful resource. You can check it out at your local library. Four characters from different walks of life converge on the titular property, which has a bad past and bad reputation. Eleanor Vance, the protagonist, has answered an advertisement posted by Dr. Montague seeking assistance for a haunted house investigation. She sees it as the first adventure of her life, which had until that point been spent taking care of her invalid mother. Once the action begins, it's hard to tell if the four people are cracking under strain of their isolation in the bizarre mansion or if the house truly is haunted. It doesn't help that every angle in the building is off by a few degrees. And the decorations are, well, let's just say strange. In addition to the usual cold spots, bangs and knocks, and even a seance of sorts, Jackson adds Eleanor's internal monologue in which she struggles to understand her morbid attraction to Hill House. Even in the description, we can see some of the hallmarks of the gothic horror genre present. Um, the psychological aspect of it. You're not sure what's real. You're being taken to this castle-esque environment uh, where there is a malevolent and foreboding entity possibly inhabiting it. Um, to touch on Shirley Jackson personally, um, the character of Eleanor seems to be a stand-in in the sense that she's having to take care of her mother. There's a strain to that relationship, um, which, as we've discussed previously, Jackson had with her own mother. It was a very contentious relationship. Um, going into um, the background for the book itself, um, Jackson at this point um, had never written a ghost story, and the inspiration to write a ghost story came to Miss Jackson according to her account in the article Experience in Fiction. She said as she was reading a book about a group of 19th century psychic researchers who rented a haunted house in order to study it and record their impressions of what they had seen and heard for the purpose of presenting a treatise on the Society for Psychic Research. As she recalls, they thought they were being terribly scientific and provoking all kinds of things, and yet the story that kept coming through their dry reports was not at all the story of a haunted house. It was the story of a of several earnest, I believe misguided, certainly determined people with differing motivations and backgrounds. The story so excited her that she could hardly wait to create her own haunted house and her own people to study it. So that was kind of the genesis point for the story. But this next section is where her personal history starts to bleed into it. She was on a trip to New York and at the end of 125th Street Station, she saw a grotesque house. It was very, very evil looking very imposing facade but on the back side of it it had actually been demolished and burned out so it was hollow and backtracking a little bit that's actually uh, a visual that would later show up in we have lived in the castle the, the fire that desiccated it and made it look more like this this castle sort of environment 
So she was gathering more haunted house research, trying to find that, that perfect facade. And she found a picture of a house in California, and she contacted her mother about it, who lived in California, and she asked her to, to uh, see if she could figure out you know, where the house was. And it turns out that her great-grandfather had built the house in the picture, um, but it had been burned down by townspeople at some point, mysteriously. Mm. Mm. So, um, yes, her, her great-grandfather, as we mentioned, she comes from a long line of architects. He actually built that house and um, this, this super creepy house. And uh, it was apparently burned down by locals at some point. Her mother said that she was surprised that the picture was still in circulation. So this idea of the, the creepy, uh, ominous-looking house is something that's seemingly like in her DNA. And again, like the, the, the metaphorical concept of architecture and being bounded in and sort of like being surrounded by like all these predetermined angles. Um, it's something that seems to relate to her personally with just sort of being entrapped within her life. Oh, so spooky. <laughs> it's like she was literally made for American Gothic literature. A hundred percent. Her life is without a doubt characterized strongly by misfortune, mm. um, but it's sort of the perfect storm for having the life experience necessary to create stories like this and give yeah. them a real sense of authenticity. So again, the, uh, the main things about Hill House that really seem to register is um, this idea of this place that is so uniquely defined by its crooked architecture and the angles that don't quite fit right. And it's sort of this ominous place. And the Hill House concept in general um, is it's a very unsafe place. People tend to stay away from it. And while that's the case, the main character, Eleanor, who seems to be the stand-in for Shirley in this case, she feels at home here. She shouldn't want to be here, but it's inescapable for her. And that's something that is uh, returned to and grappled with throughout the story without getting too heavy into spoilers. Yeah, no spoilers here. Except for when we disclaim it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now, to round things out, we're going to circle back around to the beginning, the story that put Shirley Jackson on the map, and that's the lottery. Um, Again, Shirley returns to a New England setting, the perennial setting for, for all of these stories the one that she seems to feel truly comfortable in and that lends itself to that that gothic sort of atmosphere. Now, spoiler alert, here's going to be our description of the lottery for context. The lottery tells of a small, nameless town's annual summer ritual. On every June 27th, the father of every family draws a slip of paper from a black box. One slip has a mark on it. When one family is selected, every family member of that family then draws another slip of paper one of which, again, is marked. When it is determined who has selected the marked paper, that individual is immediately, inexplicably, and unemotionally stoned, presumably to death by the entire village, including their own family members. The individual stoned this particular year is Tessie Hutchinson, wife to Bill Hutchinson, mother to Bill Jr., Nancy, and little Davy, to whom someone gave a few pebbles. Spoiler alert for The Lottery. Summary also brought to you. Oh, 
this this summary was not actually brought to us by a monster she wrote. Oh my wow. gosh! Wow! Tell us about it. Uh, it uh, <laughs> comes from a writer named Mitchelson. Thank you, Mitchelson. The lottery tells of a small, nameless town's annual summer ritual. On every June 27th, the father of every family draws a slip of paper from a black box. One slip has a mark on it. When the family is selected, every member of that family then draws another slip of paper, one of which, again, is marked. When it is determined who has selected the marked paper, that individual is immediately, inexplicably, and unemotionally stoned, presumably to death by the entire village, including their own family members. The individual stoned this particular year is Tessie Hutchinson, wife to Bill Hutchinson, mother to Bill Jr., Nancy, and little Davy, to whom someone gave a few pebbles. The story concludes with a haunting line, it isn't fair, it isn't right, Mrs. Hutchinson screamed, and then they were upon her. Ooh, I hate that. <laughs> no, it's very, very awful. Um, there's a whole lot to pull from right there immediately. Um, this person's life, through no fault of her own, is taken away from her and through other people's traditions and ideas and customs, she is persecuted and... Not just persecuted, but... killed, yeah. Violently, violently murdered. Yes, yes. Yeah. Violently murdered. So one of the big things here is how quickly the... the uh, protagonist of the story Tessie Hutchinson her family turns on her um, and monster she wrote uh, they write the truth was that Jackson always struggled against her role as wife and mother or to be more accurate the roles that others cast her in professionally she was a successful author but at home in North Bennington she was Hyman's wife the mother of four children her husband expected her to play the part of the faculty wife to maintain the household to rear the children to cook to clean and to entertain people he brought into their home the residents of the college town never quite accepted her as one of their own which likely informed how she wrote about various groups and tolerance of outsiders as in the lottery um, as we talked about before hyman encouraged his wife's work especially because it supplemented his income, but when eventually her career eclipsed his, Hyman no longer tolerated her success and belittled her in front of his university colleagues. What's more, he was frequently unfaithful, being particularly fond of his former students. We see here, especially in the lottery, when the family member, of, the family of Tessie Hutchinson turned against her and stole her, that sense of betrayal that she probably felt in her personal life Hyman would have an affair or belittle her, um, talk down to her. Um, that really comes through here, and it sort of seems like the ultimate betrayal for someone who had so little moments of joy and so few things in her life that she could really call uh, positive and good and uplifting. I would add that um, the ultimate betrayal comes in here with this headstrong following of tradition over family, over your loved ones, that you would rather um, succumb or contribute to a tradition that has harmed a society for so long. You would rather just play the part and, and hurt your own family rather than fight it. I think that's also like, I think it's where a lot of Shirley Jackson's um, 
idea of betrayal comes from, where her family sort of turned against her for their own traditionalism. I would agree with that, Kelly. And I think that really puts a, a fine uh, period on everything. Just um, in all things, she was just struggling um, to, to be herself. And that ultimately wasn't something she was able to do fully in real life. So her work was a way that she could kind of talk about that and express those ideas. And I think that's best expressed in these three stories. And that's probably why they are her most remembered stories, because they're so raw and personal in that way. And they talk about these things that would have been very important to her. I think they function as a mask or as even as like a wall for her to like show herself and be vulnerable, but at the same time, not expose herself. Agreed, for sure. And moving forward, um, as we start getting into your section, I, I think that's probably a great way to get into like how that affected her legacy. Um, yeah, so I guess I'll jump right into it. Yeah, sure. So as we get into Shirley Jackson's legacy, I want to go back a little bit to uh, American Gothic. And John, you did a great job of telling us what American Gothic literature is. But I wanted to point out that it started, it started as Victorian Gothic. So there were a lot of themes that had to do with 1800s England. And then as it metamorphosed into American Gothic, it had a lot more to do with what was happening in America at the time. As we know, there was a lot of nationalism. Um, the Second World War had just ended. And a lot of what Shirley Jackson talks about is those things that she had to experience in society, racism, misogyny, bigotry, and that is really what shapes American Gothic, the horrors of reality. So since you just left off with the lottery, I'm going to hop right back on that bandwagon. Go for it. Um, so the issue we run into with Shirley Jackson's legacy is she didn't really have one because she was often ignored or dismissed by literary critics. As I mentioned earlier, The Lottery is one of the most anthologized short stories in the West. We've all read it. It's been taught for years. And yet, we are still arguing whether or not it belongs in the literary canon. So this issue that we're running into is literary critics discrediting Jackson and her literary skill because of who she was, what she looked like, what she wrote about. Um, and I think The Lottery is a living, breathing example of that. Joyce Carol Oates, an American author, short story writer, and essayist who has written well over 50 books, was also an editor for the collection Shirley Jackson Novels and Stories. She was interviewed in 2010 by Rich Kelly about the collection. The lottery, she says, quote, is not so very different from the brilliantly rendered and unsettling short stories by Edgar Allan Poe. But it was published in The New Yorker, at the time far less than now, a sort of bastion of proper middle-class Caucasian American values. Jackson's story suggests that ordinary Americans, like the readers of The New Yorker, in fact, are not so very different from the lynch mob mentality of the Nazis. And as you can probably figure out, people didn't like that. As Ian mentioned in the 50s, patriotism and nationalism were rampant. So insinuating that red-blooded Americans were anything like the Nazis was a surefire way of putting a target on your back. Um, so it really didn't matter how great Jackson's writing was. The literary critics were not going to acknowledge her. And they're going to try pretty hard to ignore her. 
One way this is exemplified is by Harold Bloom in Bloom's literature. He argues that the lottery, quote, wounds you once and once only. He says that the story isn't worth rereading and therefore has no place in canonical literature. The review was hardly a page long and in no way tried to analyze or understand Jackson li Jackson's literature. This reductive take on Jackson's work is a clear example of people not wanting to take women's issues and women's literature seriously. Um, Jackson spoke what she thought was the truth and that's what got her ignored. However, I think the very fact that we've been not only reading but teaching Jackson for decades disproves Bloom. In fact, the recent renaissance of her literature as a whole disproves him. Why would we continue to be so obsessed with her if she weren't worth rereading? Fritz Ulschläger, in his article, The Stoning of Mistress Hutchinson, Meeting and Context in the Lottery, writes that the, quote, the goal of the ritual is to contain the potentially disruptive force of an awakened female sexuality. And this is what I think captures Shirley Jackson's literature so perfectly. In We Have Always Lived in the Castle, we see two sisters against the world, one so fed up with her patriarchal, demanding family that she kills them all. In The Haunting of Hill House, we see a young woman finally freed from taking care of her mother, who steals her sister's car and runs off to do one single thing for herself. And in so doing, gets to experiment with sexuality and relationships. So what we learn from Shirley Jackson's writing is that she was haunted by misogynist societal expectations. And she lets us know. I believe that the critics of the time didn't value the perspective of women, and therefore they didn't think Jackson's work had any merit. Ruth Franklin, author of A Rather Haunted Life, says that Jackson's work, quote, constitutes nothing less than a secret history of American women of her era. And I think the reason that we're seeing this renaissance of her work now is that it's becoming more and more acceptable to question our society's hierarchy. Alexis Shotwell, in her article, No Proper Feeling for Her House, The Relational Formation of White Womanliness in Shirley Jackson's Fiction, talks about the normalization of the dismissal and silencing of housewives. Because Jackson was considered a, quote, proper woman in many ways, she bore children, stayed home, and took care of them in the house, she wasn't taken seriously as a writer. She also wrote about housekeeping and women's magazines, which probably was the bulk of her career and literary critics could use that as an excuse to dismiss her writing. So when Jackson critiqued the middle class and the heteropatriarchy, which she was a part of, she could easily be brushed off by more, quote, serious writers. Years after her death, there was a renewed interest in Jackson that led to many film adaptations and new critical analysis. Jonathan Lethem, for example, in his 1997 Salon review of Just an Ordinary Day, a posthumous collection, said, quote, to put it most simply, Shirley Jackson wrote about the mundane evils hidden in everyday life and about the warring and subsuming of selves in a family, a community, and sometimes even in a single mind. She wrote about prejudice, neurosis, and identity. Jackson's forte was psychology and society People, in other words. People disturbed, dispossessed, misunderstanding, or thwarted one another compulsively. People colluding absently in monstrous acts. She had a jeweler's eye for the microscopic degrees by which a personality creeps into madness or a relationship turns from dependence to exploitation. 
I just want to linger on that a second. Because that was just a really interesting quote to me. You just, just back up, listen to it again. It's beautiful. Based on that quote, that makes me think a lot about Hill House and how Jackson likes to write untrustworthy narrators. So this sort of creeping madness that Jonathan Lethem mentions um, comes out in the ways that we see these narrators observing their lives and how what they view versus what is actually happening isn't always the same. Um, I think that's a really cool um, literary tactic. Uh, Angela Haig in 2005 wrote, quote, by focusing on her female characters' isolation, loneliness, and, fra and fragmenting identities, their simultaneous inability to relate to the world outside themselves or to function autonomously, and their confrontation with an inner emptiness that often results in mental illness, Jackson displays in pathological terms the position of many women in the 1950s. But her unveiling of this era's dark corners is not limited to one gender. For her apocalyptic consciousness, sinister children, and scathing portraits of nuclear families and their suburban environments, her depiction of a quotidian and predictable world that can suddenly metamorphose into the terrifying and the bizarre, reveal her character's reactions to a culture of repression, containment, and paranoia, end quote. And that might as well be the dictionary definition of gothic fiction. So to Harold Bloom, um, who said, she only wounds you once, to you I have to say, what? <laughs> <laughs> Did we read the same story? Did we read the same author? I just think that's wild. He only wrote less than a page. Yes. Yeah. Less than a page. And then you go back and read these, and it's like way more in-depth, yeah. mm -hmm. like an actual analysis of, of what she was trying to say. Mr. Bloom, are they lying? Mr. Bloom. Did they manufacture all of this nuance and depth? I think that Bloom's analysis is very, um, obviously it's very dismissive. Very. And it's probably uh, very indicative of the view of her work while she was alive. Right. And I think that's, that's important to think about is why we don't remember her, why she's not part of the literary canon is because people like Harold Bloom just wanted to dismiss her because of what she was saying. Yeah. And unfortunately, it seems like they were pretty successful. There has been a huge renaissance of her work, and we've gotten all these different adaptations. Um, speaking of which, I really want to talk about the Netflix show, The Haunting of Hill House. Um, that ad adaptation came in 2018, directed by Mike Flanagan. You might know him from The Haunting of Bly Manor, Dr. Sleep, or Hush. With The Haunting of Hill House, I think he made a very interesting choice because instead of four strangers, he went with this family. They're all these siblings who grew up in Hill House yes. and are then still being haunted by like the memory of what happened in Hill House. And obviously it's a modernized retelling. You know, it's not gonna be the same story and I appreciate that. I like that it's an inspiration rather than a direct adaptation, but it does feel like the purpose of the story was changed a little bit because in the original, in, in Jackson's version, She's talking a lot about escaping this toxic and exhausting mother that she had to take care of and escaping from a sister that um, took her. She did take her into her home, but was still like not kind to her. It's yes. like, I have to like let you live in my house because you're my sister. Wow. So it's like escaping this very toxic family and going to meet up with strangers. 
um, to try to live her life. And then it's sort of the opposite in the show. It's, it's more like um, reconnecting with it the is. family in a way. And I think I'll give him some credit because I do really like the way he handled the, the sort of vagueness that Jackson had. Because in the book, um, and this is going to be a spoiler, I'm sorry. In the book, Nell, our main character, was experiencing some what she thought to be paranormal activity. There's banging on the doors. You think it's a ghost going up and down the halls. And then at the end of the book, she's running around the halls banging on the doors. And this was sort of like parallel to what we imagined was happening. And that creates this cyclical time structure. But it is not explicitly stated. And then in... Flanagan's version, he actually does have a very, it is explicitly a sort of cyclical time structure. And I'm not going to say how that comes about. I'm going to try to avoid that spoiler because this is, you know, a new show. Yeah. I'm going to go watch it. But um, it is very well done. I thought it was very interesting. I think it's very effective. It is. I really like the way that he, he does, he expresses time. Um, and you'll have to watch the show to find out how. You're, you're right. It is very rooted in character, Callie. Um, yes. And just kind of like seeing this experience through each member of the family's eyes and um, yeah. what their perception and take on it is. Because in the, the original novel, it's um, very ambiguous about whether the haunting is actually real. Yes, and I think that's where the, the unreliable narrator comes in. Mm-hmm. So I do like the way that he did like different perspectives. That way we see the story different ways, and you know we don't know what the truth of it is. Yes. I think that's, that was a really interesting idea. Right. No, you're definitely not coming into this adaptation and from Go thinking, all right, this is 100% a haunted house. It's real. All these people are reliable, credible sources of information. I feel yeah. good about it. Exactly. Ghosts. But that's what I love about horror is it usually is very ambiguous and you don't you don't really know what's going on and they play with that a lot I think in a lot of movies it's usually between like mental health stuff which is kind of questionable because sometimes that gets into um, this idea that we don't understand mental health and it's scary um, and sometimes that pushes us to like understand it better and sometimes that just demonizes it and I think that both Flanagan and Jackson did a good job of saying mental health is very difficult to deal with and it is very scary but it is something that can be understood um so this was not the first adaptation of The Haunting of Hill House we also had a film in 1999 called The Haunting directed by Jan Dibont it premiered oh just kidding Ignore the premiered part. The film, instead of being a psychological thriller, was more of an adventure horror, uh, where the characters had to defeat the evil lurking in Hill House. Uh, Obviously a very different take from the original story. Um, People hated it so much that it became the inspiration for Scary Movie 2. (laughs) I just think it's very funny. More people have probably seen Scary Movie 2 than The Haunting. Correct. But there was a version before that in 1963, uh, same name. It was also called The Haunting. And that film was actually really important to the LGBTQ plus community because Theodora was explicitly gay. And now we get hints of that in the book. We get an idea that, oh, we think Theodora is gay. 
but it's never like explicitly said. Um, so that was really great for the community, especially in the 60s where, again, I'm going to mention the Hayes Code. There was a lot of issue with creating queer characters. Um, you could lose your job. You could lose, like, the movie could flop. Like, any anything could happen. So usually people wouldn't do stuff like that. So that was a really great step forward in the 60s. Um, and in that version, it was... It was more similar to the original book in that it was a small group of people invited to a seemingly haunted mansion by a paranormal investigator, and the film focused more on the mental breakdown of Eleanor rather than the haunting. So that one may be a better version to go watch if you want a more direct adaptation of the book. Now I want to talk about like why is The Haunting of Hill House so important to modern horror um, Joe Hill says that, quote, it's a foundational document, the textbook on what a good ghost story can be. And Paul Tremblay, author of A Head Full of Ghosts, agrees by calling it, quote, the haunted house novel. All others stand in its shadow. Joe Hill, you may know as Stephen King's son or the author of The Fireman and Heart Shaped Box, also said that Jackson understood that, quote, houses aren't haunted people are. And I think that really gets it. That really gets yes. straight to the point. That it's there's nothing really in this house besides the ideas we put in there. He also says that quote, all the most terrible specters are already there inside your head just waiting for the cellar door of the subconscious to spring open so they can get out, sink their icy claws into you. In the story, the house toys with the the house toys with the minds of our heroes, just like the cat with the mouse, with a fascinated, joyful cruelty. Nothing is more terrifying than being betrayed by your own senses and psyche. Like Hill, authors including Stephen King, Neil Gaiman, Ramsey Campbell, and Carmen Maria Machado were equally terrified, equally terrified and inspired by Shirley Jackson. So although literary scholars still debate her place in the canon, it's obvious the love there is for her in the Gothic literary tradition. Finally, let's go back to We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which was adapted into film in 2018, also on Netflix. That one was directed by Stacey Passan, and the film is much more of a direct retelling of Jackson's novel rather than The Haunting of Hill House. Thaisa Farmiga, plays Mary Catherine Blackwood, and she is creepy, meticulous, and compelling, while her sister Constance, played by Alexandra Daddario, is her complete opposite. She's cheerful, meek, and trapped in a daydream. Uh, the film is good. I don't think it really captures the ideas that Shirley Jackson put down on paper. I, when you read a Shirley Jackson novel, it's very much this psychological thriller. You're really inside of Mary Catherine's head and you're like watching the world through her eyes. And then when you look at the movie, I think it really distances you from the narrative. And so while the story is there, it's not really as creepy as the book. You're not as immersed and enmeshed in the psychology yes. of the character. Yes. That would be something that would be really difficult to convey through film. I think they tried. Um, they they had the scene where Mary Catherine is like digging up her spells that she like had buried to 
uh, protect Constance and she finds things missing and like it shows this tension between her and their cousin and like I think it was done well I just don't think they captured the same creepiness and since we're on the topic as we have always said lived in the castle uh, I do want to briefly talk about Paul Tremblay's book A Head Full of Ghosts I know it's a little bit off topic but the novel itself is quite obviously a love letter to Jackson I mean it, it features Mary Barrett and Marjorie Barrett as the two sisters, uh, very much a parallel to Constance and Mary Catherine. Um, and if you've, read, if you've read We Have Always Lived in the Castle, you generally have an idea of how A Head Full of Ghosts is going to end, but I'm not going to spoil that here. The way that Paul Tremblay also does this is by using the unreliable narrator. So his story is written from the perspective of Mary, um, but it's also from her, it's an interview of Mary as an adult talking about when she was eight years old. So obviously there's like the issue of memory and not remembering it correctly and also like being eight years old. So you're like radically amplifying the way that things happened. Um, and I wanted to point that out because as Stephen King says, The Turn of the Screw and The Haunting of Hill House are, quote, the only two great novels of the supernatural in the last hundred years. So we're equating this incredible novel, novella, The Turn of the Screw with Shirley Jackson, which just keeps, I mean, it keeps proving to me that she is worth more than the credit she's been given. Um, and she obviously has a place in the canon because all of these authors have taken inspiration from her and have been writing because of her, and horror has been shaped because of what she has done. It's funny that you said that because in a completely different article, I have a in my miscellaneous uh, facts quote that Jackson used supernatural elements in her work not to deliver cheap thrills, but in the manner of Poe or James to plumb the depths of human condition or more particularly to explore the psychic damage to which women are especially prone. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just the fact that she's humanizing women in the 50s, and somehow there's still this debate about whether or not she belongs in the canon. Well, it's absurd, because in addition to comparing her to all of these preeminent horror figures from the past, mm-hmm. these are some of the biggest names and voices in horror today that are saying this. We're citing yeah. her as an influence. She's the Stephen blueprint. King. Stephen King is saying this. The biggest voice in horror yeah. today. So, Mr. Bloom, if, if your goal listening. was to, to strike this woman's name from the record, and... You have failed, sir. You, you have. Um, <laughs> she is a, a huge part of this and always will be. Her importance can't be understated. Absolutely. Um, So although we don't have this great literary revolution from Shirley Jackson, we do have this long-lasting legacy. And part of that can also be seen by the Shirley Jackson Awards, which, if you aren't aware, um, is a yearly award that was established in 2007 to recognize and celebrate outstanding works of psychological horror and dark fantasy. Um, In fact, recent winner... Stephen Graham Jones just visited the library in September, digitally, but he still visited us. Um, Lovely fellow. Very funny guy. Um, His book, The Only Good Indians, and his novella, Night of the Mannequins, won the award in 2020. 
And to bring us to a close, I do want to reiterate a quote that Anna has already given to us. And that is, laughter is possible. Laughter is possible. So despite all of the horrors that Shirley Jackson saw, she was able to write some incredible literature and entertain us many, many years after her death. And we will not forget her. Thanks, Shirley. Thank you, Shirley. Thank you, Shirley. Thank you, Shirley. Thank you, Shirley.